This is I Was There, gigs that change the world. I just want to tell you people something. There's some good people out here, and you are insulting their intelligence. And if you come to this country at our invitation, and we have to charge you through no choice of our own, three pounds, right? If you don't want to pay it, don't come. Episode 7, The Isle of Wight Festival. The 26th to the 31st of August, 1970. Ray Falk. You've got to have somebody, a star that's so powerful that it'll draw people from the mainland. It's got to be somebody really important. And the name Bob Dylan sort of been mentioned. Well, that, of course, was the turning point when we managed to secure Bob Dylan through huge good fortune and a certain amount of perseverance and ingenuity, maybe. And, of course, the Isle of Wight 69, we were two weeks after Woodstock, was effectively like Dylan's own Woodstock. Pretty sizable audience, about 150,000 people, and it was tremendously successful. There were no regulations, so we just did our thing. And it caused huge controversy on the Isle of Wight. I mean, they didn't know what had hit them. I mean, this was, like, bigger than anything that ever happened before. I mean, it was one of the biggest things that ever happened in the UK, let alone on the Isle of Wight. How do you follow Dylan? There's nobody in the world of that stature that you could get. Of course, in show business, you're supposed to follow your next event with something even bigger, aren't you? So what do we do? And we decided that the only alternative was to go for a raft of top names. And so we booked about 20 world-class names. It was extraordinary in its width and breadth in that you had acoustic, you had Joan Byers, you had Joni Mitchell. The Doors, Jimi Hendrix. Emerson, Lake and Palmer did their first proper concert. John Sebastian, you know, Jethro Tull or Chicago or even Tiny Tim. The Who, who were the loudest band I've ever heard. And Free, of course. What a wonderful set they put on. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. The Moody Blues. Leonard Cohen, Miles Davis and so on. I mean, there's a huge number of great names that we're just really, really delighted to take part. Ricky Farr. I just wanted people to come and sit on their butt and listen to music in the field. And we had a great site, great festival site, but they said, no, you're not going there. You're going to go there. Well, we said, if we go there, nobody will pay because they're going to sit on the hill. And we said, no, and we're going to put it on. And uh, they said, well, if you do that, then you have to put a wall around it. And everything, everything we said or did, they threw an obstacle in it. The local opposition was fierce, and we were hounded around the island looking for a site. We couldn't go back to the same site, because the site was really not that suitable. It wasn't quite big enough, and it certainly wasn't big enough to have the size of the event that we were going to have in 1970. We built our arena, we built the festival site, and that was all running pretty smoothly. And the event happened. And that's when all hell broke loose. Roger Simmons. We got down to Portsmouth, and the crowds were just unbelievable. We thought, well, it's going to take ages to get on a ferry. There's no room for vehicles. I mean, it was just passengers, you know, crammed in as many as we could get on. So my mate John said, I've got an idea. He said, pretend to faint. 
I said, why? He said, just trust me. So I said, oh, like this, and pretended to faint. He grabbed me, and then he st- we started to push through the crowd. He said, well, this guy's ill. This guy's ill. Can you move, move, move out the way, please? Move and we worked our way down to the front, and we got onto the next ferry. We knew there was an issue with ferries, but then there were paddle steamers from Scotland that came down, and there were people rowing boats across, and it was kind of a Dunkirk of rock, you know. John Giddings. I remember they put three and a half thousand of us on a car ferry you just stood on the car ferry and I think we only got the bus as far as um, Newport you had to walk the rest of the way to the festival site it took hours and then you came over this hill it must have been like going to battle and you saw like there were people as far as the eye could see it was extraordinary we really dreamed of this being the largest gathering of human beings together and coming to listen to music. I can remember on the Friday night, I arrived on site in the evening and went to the backstage area and drove in between these high walls. I didn't see any of the audience at all. And I was led up the ramp onto the stage, not thinking about what I was about to see. And suddenly, as I looked out from the stage, you could see this sea of people to the horizon right the way around. And I thought, wow, what a thing. What have we done? You know? <laughs> and there was a feeling of helplessness that... This is now going to run its course. No one human being can change the course of this. Actually, the people that looked down and counted the numbers from above, they said there was over 600,000, 652,000 to be exact. What I don't understand is how we managed to meet people we knew on an island amidst 600,000 other people. I think we made an arrangement and we stuck to it because nobody had a mobile phone. You couldn't change the arrangement. And I was standing there and it was filling and filling and filling and, and I mean the back of the crowd's like a mile and a half away and, and then the hill was filling up like we knew it would. You knew you were in something that was making history. I've never known it since to get that extraordinary feeling of something going on. You felt you were part of a movement. Brian Hinton. It was enormous. It was the biggest crowd I've ever seen before or since. And we all thought we were a little cult. So we all went, thought it was just us. We were the only freaks in the village. And then we go to the Isle of Wight Festival and there's hundreds of thousands of us. I think the memory that sticks with me is friendliness. You were there with like-minded people. People were there, wanted to hear the music, wanted to listen to the lyrics, see what was being said to them, you know, through the music. And then, of course, there was sharing of food sharing of all sorts of things. People offering, say, hey, man, you haven't got a tent. Do you want to kick in with us, you know? You could talk to anyone because it was a shared experience of music. Music was in our souls, you know. Before that, I just listened to our vinyl albums in my bedroom. I didn't realise there were this many people who liked Jimi Hendrix, The Who, that kind of music. It was just a city the size of Brighton, and I was temporary mayor. <laughs> and, and I'm not taking anything away from the Folk Brothers and the whole team, because they were just everything. Everybody went way beyond. I mean, you know, when you've got toilets for 100,000, that's one thing. I mean, the smell of all of those unwashed bodies having been rained on and sat in a field for four days smelled disgusting. I mean, the loos were literally a scaffolding bar above a trench and I sadly saw a bloke fall backwards into the trench which is one of the most disgusting sights of my life
all the people are then just tents and waters and ethnic fluids and hospitals and nurses and babies being born and God knows a zillion babies being conceived. I mean, it was like a war zone. Imagine catering for that many people. There are only 150,000 people live on the Isle of Wight now. No wonder they brought the island to a standstill. Ian Anderson. I mean, it started off with good intentions, but by the time we got to day three of the, of the festival, it was disintegrating into something very ugly and, and quite chaotic. We put this festival on you with a lot of love. We work for one year for you pigs. Then, of course, the French Maoists turn up. They were shouting, oh, music should be free, everything should be free. And I thought, well, I said to the head of the Maoists, I said, but you just paid £10 to come over on the ferry. And you can't pay £4 to see four days of music? And you want to break our walls down? And you want to destroy it? Well, you go to hell! £3 to see the best lineup of all time, and they said wanted it to be free. And Ricky Farr, who was the compere on the day, was trying to impose some kind of control on not the audience that was in the venue already, but those at the back who were trying to break down the fences and get in and say, but who do you think's paying for the PA system and the staging and the fencing and, and, and the artists? You know, it's not free. It's costing a lot of money. It was falling on very deaf ears. I suppose the mood of the times was changing as well. The hippie dream was evaporating in front of our eyes. The hippie ideal gave way to a rather anarchic demand for free music and free everything. I think maybe it could have been done more effectively, with been more professional capability, a bit more money in the bank. But I think people who performed on those days in 1970, my guess is you'd find positive and negative memories in probably about 50-50. I can't imagine Joni Mitchell, for example, wanting to talk about it because she had a very public meltdown on stage. Listen a minute, will you? Will you listen a minute? I think that you're acting like tourists, man. Give us some respect. It's probably something you want to just put behind you and never, never have to think about again. I didn't know Joni Mitchell, but you know, I felt terribly sorry for her because she needed the, the attention, the the quietness, the pin-drop atmosphere, which she just certainly wasn't going to get there. And I think she probably expected that kind of a reaction and didn't get it at the Isle of Wight, and that's rather sad. Miss Joni Mitchell, I think you will all agree that despite the interruption, she did a beautiful job. The event itself was massive and ran for five days and nights. Most of the bands wanted to play twice the length of time they're supposed to. People got more music for their money if they could stay awake. But there were some terrific performances there from all sorts of stars. I and mean, The Who were phenomenal. They just kept going. The Who just walked in and they were fully fueled, ready to roll. You know, they were, they were on the road. They were just fit and ready. They just walked on, plugged in and delivered a spellbinding set. They had searchlights, these sort of World War II searchlights scanning the skies and scanning the audience, and it just really lit thing up. Two o'clock in the morning. That set by The Who, it's probably the best set I'd ever seen in my life. And they played for hours. 
The Who again seemed to play in the middle of the night. The lights were spectacular and you got this incredible visual impact. You saw Keith Moon's drumsticks which he kept on breaking. The great British rock drummers, like, for instance, a Keith Moon, who would take a three-piece band, and Moon would not only keep the rhythm section with the ox, but he would then do the filigree of the fill, and he actually played like he was making spaghetti. He would then fill and give all this colour. You had Daughtry, just as he had been at Woodstock, really, with the microphone was a little sue, and he was hurling it around, Tanton in his boiler suit, throwing himself around, doing his wheelie guitar bits. And Pete, with his anger and his effort, and doing those three Steve Cropper uplicks on that Cherry Gred Gibson ST. If you were there and you felt it, it was something that had such intense passion and true soul. I mean, the Who really were the stars of that particular show in, in terms of the rock. No film would ever capture exactly how wonderful that set was. So one of the highlights of the Who's whole career. It was cataclysmic. Hey, we'll do one more for you. This is called Nothing Is Easy. Thanks for coming. Hope you had a good time. We'll see you next year, maybe. Huh? See you again. For us, it was business as usual. You know, it was just what we did. We were in good fighting trim. We'd just come back from three tours of doing the USA, opening up for Led Zeppelin. You know, we had to be able to deliver impact in a relatively short space of time. And at festivals, that's usually the case. And we were following the Moody Blues, who were a little bit more laid back and easy, so we could come on full tilt and, you know, go nuts for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you don't think about numbers of people when you go on stage. You're usually just kind of dealing with that first 50 rows that you can see, you can make out a face. And I think that makes it intimate enough. And beyond that, it's just receding into the distance. Once you got over that, it was another day at a very exciting office. And the same thing with the Isle of Wight. You know, you play to the first 50 rows of people standing and those whose faces you can see. And the rest of them, you can't see them. And more importantly, they can't see you because there were no video screens in those days. <laughs> when you get out there to do that, you're just living for the moment. You know, you're not planning more than a half a bar ahead at any time and before you know it the show's over the set's finished it's time to get off stage and make way for the next person so i think my memories probably are a little just living for the moment thank you all good night thank you I think it was the Moody Blues were on in, in the evening, and then it was us and then Hendrix to close the show. Mitch Mitchell on drums. And the man with the guitar, Jimi Hendrix. Hello, how are you doing, England? Glad to see you. Thank you very much for showing me. You know, really beautiful and out of sight. And thanks for the It has been a long time, hasn't it? And who knows what poor old Jimi Hendrix would have thought. We can't ask him that question, but 
He was for what I suppose you would consider the headline act in as much as it was the last day of the festival and he was the act to go on last. Jimmy was troubled, but he played troubled and he wasn't it by any means his great performance, but he played enough. I often wondered why Jimi Hendrix chose to do certain things. He seemed to be strangely drawn like a moth to a flame, that he had to do these things, but it, it didn't look like he was having a great time. He never looked really happy on stage. I was really waiting for Hendrix, but he was on at 3am, something ridiculously late, and we waited ages. He came on and he was lethargic, lacklustre, it was disjointed, it just didn't gel, and I fell asleep. Then I heard him say, all right, then let's start again. Uh, good morning, England, something like that. We're having a time, but oh, trouble with the equipment. Thank you for being so patient. And then something happened, and they were absolutely wonderful. To see Jimi Hendrix was incredible. I mean, to see him was just in the real world was amazing. On a good night, he was, he was fantastic. And actually, you can now see it as a really important concert. The last proper concert he ever did. It was still Hendrix, so at the end of the day, it was great to see him. A lot of people in the beginning were a little unsure of Jimmy. They thought he was some sort of a, kind of a freak to look at. I just thought he was amazing and colourful, and when he took that guitar, it was like it was growing out of his body, and he played it that way, and, and that's why his, his ascension was so rapid and his records were so quick. And what was so lovely about that set was a lot of the songs didn't come out actually until after his death. They were gentle love songs. He was moving on from being the man who played the guitar with his teeth. It was quite down key in that it was more lyrical and sad and actually almost mystical. It wasn't show-off music. It was really deep, deep music that the Jimi Hendrix band played that night. A lot of the acts at the 70 Festival were quite melancholy. You know, they're they're quite low-key compared to what those artists had previously done. I mean, think of Hendrix and and The Doors here. But they were very kind of cerebral and thoughtful and moving, I thought, and a lot of people thought. But some people want Hendrix to be more lively, and I don't think they regard as being defective. I think they're just different. Some people need that, don't they, to, to get themselves fired up. And it's this... Thing, that he's got to be angry about something to make it happen. You go out onto the stage and you turn it to your advantage, that height of emotion and anxiety, and you, you, you make it work for you in a positive way. But Jimmy, I don't know, he was troubled, and sure enough, a few weeks later, he, he, he died. Still a mystery to me how he died. Um, so it was only, I think, three weeks between him playing the Arnold White Festival and him dying at the age of 27. I don't want to be melancholy and sad because, you know, they were fireworks. They were busting stars. They flew into the sky and everybody enjoyed them for that time they were in the sky. And we still have their music to remember. But having him to come and play, and it unfortunately being Jim Morrison's last show, and for those that see the, the Arnold White film, when he spoke in that joint in the red light at the end, singing, this is the end, that was the end. The 
the last morning when I saw Richie Havens and uh, just for him Leonard Cohen in the dawn light there were only a few thousand of us left and it was starting to drizzle with rain and I said in one of my books like the tears of a lost generation there was that sense that the party was over it was the greatest weekend of my life I think the festival dates of the latter part of the, the 60s was the death knell of the whole hippie thing and when we got to Woodstock in 69 or the Isle of Wight in 1970 then that really was the point where the hippie thing was just beginning to go into meltdown and particularly with the Isle of Wight which ended in, in a pretty nasty way. There was a huge social change taking place at that time with the free festival movement went in one direction and meanwhile the great bulk of people went off into things like prog rock and glam rock and things and, and lost the taste for any kind of radical thought and it all dissipated for a long time. We probably got the feeling, quite rightly, that it wouldn't happen again in that context and indeed after that festival, it was curtains for the Isle of Wight for a long, long time. It's extraordinary now to realise that after they brought the island to a standstill, they brought in an act of parliament banning gatherings of over 5,000 people overnight on the Isle of Wight called the Isle of Wight Act. So they banned the event for 32 years. We fought against it and we had some Labour MPs who were on our side. Unfortunately, it went through. I didn't suppose there's anything we could have done about it in the end. It stopped at festivals for the next 30 years or so. We called it the last great event. We knew that we'd never be able to do another one after this. It was just so controversial. It was just so fraught. I think the Isle of Wight Festival, as it was in that particular year, it goes down as one of the brave attempts to do something that was bigger and bolder and brassier than, than previous big festivals as they had been in the UK at that time. It certainly succeeded part of the way. Well, I think that was the golden age of rock music. Now the Isle of Wight Festival is iconic worldwide because of their events. You know, nobody can say they have the heritage of Hendrix or The Doors because they don't exist anymore. I mean, the Isle of Wight Festival was the Woodstock of Europe. You know, there, there were two festivals and they were it. As festivals go, I think it's still one of the biggest ever. And, and as a social document of its time, it is unparalleled, I think, in British music history. You thought you were changing the world, obviously you weren't, but it felt like something was happening and the world was changing and life would never be the same again. Well, it wasn't for me, really. Going to these festivals, it sort of opened my eyes, really. They were life-changing. It was a magical experience. It made me want to be in it somewhere, somehow. It gave me a reason for being.
thanks to Ricky Farr, Isle of Wight MC, Ian Anderson, Jethro Tull, Brian Hinton and Roger Simmons, attendees at Isle of Wight 1970, and thanks to original Isle of Wight organiser Ray Falk and current Isle of Wight organiser and 1970 attendee John Giddings. Don't forget to rate and subscribe if you enjoyed the podcast and make sure you share I Was There With Friends. I'm Sophie Kay and this was an Absolute Radio production. Next time on I Was There, gigs that change the world. The final ever UK appearance by the band of their generation. It comes down as one of, I guess, history's greatest gigs. It's just nice to have been part of I guess rock and roll mythology. I look back at it as one of the most extraordinary things of any artist in rock history to be so embattled and to rise to such artistic heights under the glare of the brightest spotlight. You know, that's my go-to favorite rock concert of all time. That's my memory of it, and I'm sticking to it. It's Nirvana at Reading 92.